Well, thank you, worship team. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Lord Jesus, just as we've sung this morning, give me Jesus, all we want is you and the fullness of you, and we praise you that we live in the fullness of time. When you made known to us the Father, by coming from your eternal glory in heaven to this earth, teaching and living the perfect life that we could not live, and then offering yourself as the perfect sacrifice for the purification of our lives from sin. We praise you, Lord Jesus, we exalt you this morning. And as we begin this last section in the gospel according to Luke, and we look at your passion and your resurrection, we pray that you would show us more of your glory, that Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the Son of God and all his glory as our Redeemer, as our Savior. May you teach us and may we adore you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, before we take a quick, uh, before we look at Luke this morning, I wanted to just mention to you the book of the month that I put in our, our um, news and notes. It's uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and uh, this is a wonderful book uh, for you to read, uh, to grow in your knowledge about God as well as your knowledge of God. And there are really three sections in this book. Uh, one is how to know God. The second one, second section is all about his attributes, and the third section are all the benefits we enjoy in knowing God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is an excellent summer read. As you can tell, it's thicker than most of the books I usually recommend, so this will take you two months for sure. Um, so I would encourage you to read it, and if you're looking for something for your small group for the fall, the chapters are actually short enough that they make for wonderful discussions, and they have a few questions at the end of each chapter. It'd be excellent for your Bible study uh, coming up this fall as well. So again, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, the link is in, the, is in News and Notes, and so you can get a hold of that copy yourself. Well, we're finally getting to the point uh, in Luke's gospel uh, that we've really been waiting for, and that's when we see our Lord Jesus approaching His Passion Week, His final week, and then, of course, after His death on the cross, His resurrection. Well, you know, there are many um, themes that Luke brings up in telling the story about Jesus' death and resurrection. But if you've ever noticed, if you've read through the different four different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each try to present this story and what took place in Jesus' life in a different way. And in Luke's gospel, one of the major themes that comes out, and you will see it almost every single week, is that Jesus is the innocent one, the perfect Son of God, the innocent one who suffered as a martyr. Now, of course, he's much more than a martyr. He's the Savior of the world, right? But we highlight this one because it's going to be evident, even in the opening story that we're looking at in our passage today, that he is the innocent one given for us, the guilty ones. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. And uh, I'll read the section to you. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, 
And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him the money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, in this passage this morning... We're to remember Jesus, who's the true Passover lamb, who was given for us and sacrificed on our behalf. Now, as Luke opens the storyline, he opens by telling us the very beginning of the story with the unfolding of a sinister plot to murder Jesus, but also, at the same time, Jesus' determination to establish what would be the Lord's Supper celebration for for us, his church. And so the storyline in the, in the verses 1 through 6 is pretty simple, is that we have all these enemies plotting to kill Jesus, but then in verse 7 to 13, he has his disciples prepare Passover anyway in the midst of this plot, because he is determined in verses 14 to 20 to establish the celebratory meal of the new covenant that he would be inaugurating with his blood. So Luke, again, opens this passion with the story of the, all these enemies plotting against Jesus, and We see the leaders scheming to execute Jesus, but they end in a quandary. They can't quite come to an idea. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, says in verse 1, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So the timing is noted as the beginning of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two celebrations would eventually be referred to really as one, Uh, The Passover begins this week-long celebration. And the leadership is having a meeting to figure out how they're going to arrest Jesus and get him executed. They've already determined, of course, we've seen the opposition in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke notes for us two groups of people that are involved here, the chief priests, and they have the political power. And the scribes, they're the ones that have the legal reasoning. So you put these two groups together, you would think, that the politically powerful and the legal experts would be able to come up with something on how they should be able to get rid of this Jesus. Now, from the Gospel of Matthew, we know that they're also meeting in the place of Caiaphas 
the high priest with other elders and leaders in the room. Well, Jesus was gaining in popularity with the people, and they really needed to get rid of Jesus quickly uh, because he was a real threat, because they weren't truly upright religious people. They were just concerned about the power that they held. And it was dangerous, of course, for the people from their perspective to be following somebody like Jesus rather than following them. But these immense crowds of pilgrims um, prevent a lot of difficulties at this time. Uh, This pilgrim festival in Jerusalem would swell the population five times over, from 50,000 people residing in the area to 250,000. So great stealth is going to be required to move forward without some kind of an uproar, and they're looking for opportunities to relatively quietly get rid of Jesus, um, something that would be workable. But you probably know that whenever evil men are looking to do evil and they have a hard time, there's always the devil and others who are pleased to oblige. And that's what we have in verses 3 to 6. The devil and a false disciple provide the perfect solution to the quandary of these leaders. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So Satan and Judas answered the problem of the leadership. The devil was last seen in chapter 4 in the Gospel according to Luke. That was the last time we've seen him. Now, we've seen a lot of his demons in the Gospel of Luke throughout, and Jesus trounced them all throughout the process. But anyway, here he is now, and he enters Judas, one of the twelve, one of the close ones, supposedly a friend, to initiate the betrayal. So Judas Iscariot, he's from Kerioth, is an insider. He's an unexpected one to betray, a supposed friend and follower of Jesus. We don't know precisely why Judas chose to betray Jesus, although the obvious reason appears to be greed. And as we know, he's been a thief all along, having access to the treasury as treasurer of the group. But it's also mixed with other things because he's jealous of Jesus' popularity. He's at the same time disappointed that he didn't turn out to be the Messiah that he wanted him to be. And of course, he's influenced by the devil himself. Notice that this time, possession is not left to some lower-level demon, but Satan himself goes into Judas. And we don't see Judas being made irrational or self-destructive or compulsive or foaming at the mouth. You see, Satan and demons use the strategies and tactics that they believe are going to work the best in any particular situation. See, Judas is acting true to his character. Nothing out of character of Judas, and so does the devil. You see, they've been partners all along, really. And so the progression is pretty simple. It goes step by step. Judas meets with the leadership. They make an offer for a betrayal plan at a price, and they're pleased with the plan that comes up. They'll have a scapegoat, and, uh, and so they make an offer. And Judas consents to this modest price, as we know, is 30 pieces of silver, and he goes forth to deliver him in a betrayal. And he's going to betray Jesus without a crowd before the Passover Sabbath, and he's going to end Jesus' influence. It was the perfect plan to get Jesus betrayed by one of his followers. 
And it fulfills many of the Psalms and the prophecies concerning how the Messiah would be betrayed. It's exactly the way the Scriptures have foretold it, how the leaders would be involved in delivering up the Messiah, how there would be a friend who would betray the Messiah, and exactly the price, 30 pieces of silver. So Judas is now committed to the death of Jesus Christ. He's looking for the right time to fulfill the bargain of betrayal that he made. And it would actually be accomplished Thursday evening at the Garden of Gethsemane, actually later that very night. Now the Gospel according to John, he mentions that later that night, Satan re-entered Judas again at the Last Supper and tells him to leave when Jesus tells him to leave and go do his betrayal. In John 13, 27, it's recorded, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. And Jesus later that night would refer to Judas as the son of perdition, the son of destruction. It describes his character and his life and his ultimate destiny in hell. You see, all the enemies, as Luke opens the story, plot together to kill Jesus. The leadership, Satan, Judas. Judas is a character that should be of concern for the church and has been always because there are others who turn out to be like him. You know, what is the surprise of Judas among the twelve and the Judases among the church teach us as followers? We shouldn't be surprised. You know, if you haven't met a Judas yet, it won't take you long in your life before you'll meet at least one, if not many of them. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at betrayal. Well, Luke doesn't interrupt the storyline here. If you were comparing and reading along here with Matthew and Mark, you would immediately go into and back up to the story of the anointing of Jesus. Why? Because in Matthew and Mark, they want to contrast these two characters, the betrayer and the one who loves Jesus with all her heart. But Luke just goes along. In the storyline, he has this foreboding opening to the story on purpose because it's a drama of cosmic proportions that are taking place. You see, because when Jesus would die on that cross, he would put all of his enemies to shame, including these that we're talking about, and gain victory over them in his cross and resurrection. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 writes, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the demons, and those that are human opposition, and he put them to open shame, he continues, by triumphing over them in the cross. So we're getting close now to seeing Jesus for who he truly is, as Luke presents him, the Passover lamb who would be given and sacrificed for us. So as we read this story, even though all of this stuff is going on in the background, and Jesus knows it's going on in the background, he still moves ahead and has his disciples prepare the Passover. You might expect, humanly speaking, that he would hide or that he might flee in the face of such opposition from so many enemies. But Jesus kept the Passover regardless of the plot. Verse 7, they can, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? So Jesus is really in control, in case you might wonder, wonder as you're reading the Gospel of Luke, because it seems that Satan and the religious leaders and Judas have so much the upper hand in the story. 
But Jesus takes this initiative now and has Peter and John go prepare the Passover regardless of this plot. He knows exactly what's going on. Jesus has known all along who the Judas was. And he continues, and he's willing, Jesus is willing to go to the cross to fulfill the final plan of redemption for the church. A Passover would begin Thursday evening with the Passover meal. It would be a week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The lambs would be slaughtered in the temple between 2.30 and 5.30 in the afternoon on that day. And then the Passover preparations begin. Getting the lamb, getting the herbs, the bread, the wine, the location. It would all have to be celebrated within the limits of Jerusalem. And so it was very common at the time to rent rooms. And so Peter and John asked Jesus where he wants to eat the Passover as they go into Jerusalem. And so he instructs them on the plan that he has put in place. In verses 10 through 13, he says to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water is going to meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, Where's the guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus already made special arrangements. And in fact, this is another theme that we will see as we go through Luke chapters 22 and 23 especially, that Jesus is in control of all of the details of the final week of his life on this earth. So not only are they going to keep the Passover, Jesus is also making sure that they're going to avoid getting caught, at least for now. And so there are these series of events that are going to pull off, if you will, a somewhat secret meeting because of the opposition. And so there's going to be this man carrying a pitcher of water, which would be unusual in the, in the day, that a man would be doing that, and it's a signal. And you follow this man, and he's going to take you to a very particular house where everything's been worked on in advance, and what you're supposed to say to the owner of that home. And that's where they would meet. And of course, Peter and John find it exactly the way Jesus had said, and the room is furnished, and they're to make preparations. Now, in church tradition, the identification of this home is Mary, the mother of John Mark. And it would be a room, of course, on the second floor. It would be a flat roof, be accessed easily from the outside. People are going to be reclining and partaking. But I want you to notice the irony in the story. The betrayer is going to be joining them at the meal, in the room, this secret, sacred meal, for a while at least. And during that meal, Jesus, who soon would be delivered up unto death, is going to speak about his death and how he would be the one who would deliver the people of God, from their sins. Now, as we, before we get into the final part of our passage, it's important to understand a few things about the Passover celebration and what we're reading here, is that the meal was, the Passover celebration was divided into four parts. Um, four cups of wine corresponded to the four parts, and they all come from Exodus chapter 6. In that passage, there are four phrases and they are aligned with the cups and the four parts of the meal. So the passage begins, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's the first cup, I will bring you out. The second, I will deliver you from slavery to them. And then the third, which will become very important to us, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And then finally, the fourth cup, I will take you to be with my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 
So after the prayer of thanks, there would be the first cup of wine and the preliminary course of greens and some instruction about the celebration and the singing of the Hallel, the Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Then after the second cup, the main course is eaten. But then when the third cup of wine comes, it's considered a cup of blessing, the cup of redemption. It was drunk of a, out of a prayer of thanksgiving and singing of the last parts of the Hallel. And then the fourth cup would end the meal as a cup of promise, the cup of consummation. And this is going to help us understand then, as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the meaning of these events and how they hold significant for us. It's also important for us to understand that all along, this underscores a significant correlation between the Passover with our Lord Jesus' death and the institution of the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist as it's often called, a thanksgiving for God's grace. You see, the Passover was a memorial to deliverance and salvation from the Egyptians, but the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is a memorial to the greater deliverance from the greater bondage of sin. And together, they both declare the hope of the full and final salvation that goes beyond both of them to the consummation of the kingdom of God. And Jesus will be the true Passover lamb that is sacrificed and given for us in his cross. So then Jesus goes on that evening to actually celebrate the Passover because he wants to initiate and establish a meal for the new covenant in verses 14 through 20. And so we see its significance here as it begins in verses 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You know, it's only Luke that records this earlier part of the meal. And so, like, if you read Matthew and Mark's account, it doesn't have this initial part. It goes right to the final part of it. And this section is is rehearsing the opening with the first cup of wine and the blessing upon all the people. And it's here that we read about Jesus' intense desire to be with his disciples for the very last time. And it's especially meaningful at this particular Passover. And Jesus makes it very clear that all of this is planned. This is going to be the last time that he would be with them before he suffered and died. It would be their last Passover until the kingdom of God came in its fullness. Now, on another level, this truly was the last Passover in this form because it would be fulfilled in a matter of hours in Jesus Christ, and it would no longer need to be celebrated because the Lord's Supper would supplant it. And then, of course, that looks forward to the ultimate day of what the prophets foretold of the Messianic banquet in its final fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You notice that even as Jesus speaks about this supper, he's pledging there's going to be another great fellowship with you, where I will truly be with you. Jesus had talked about this previously in Luke's gospel account, but the promises in Isaiah 25, where it says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And he said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And that's the promise from the prophets. And it all goes in line up to the fulfillment, which comes in Revelation 19, verse 9, where the angel said, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, Those are the true words of God. But in the meantime, the church of Jesus Christ has been celebrating and has been waiting as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And from now on, we as his disciples celebrate it without Jesus being with us here physically, but only being with us here spiritually by the presence of his Spirit with us. But he would strengthen his church and us from heaven with all the grace that he purchased for us on the cross until the final end. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church, it's for the great hope of the kingdom and of the banquet to come. And so finally then, Jesus institutes this ceremony in verse 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So after they ate their meal, it's with this third cup that he initiates the ceremony, the cup of redemption. And Jesus now gives his own interpretation of the Passover, and he institutes something new for the church. He's tying up the history of redemption, bringing it all together, and linking the redemption picture from the Passover with the redemption that would take place on his cross. And so in verse 19, Jesus takes and blesses, gives thanks, that is, breaks the bread and shares some of it, and he states that it represents his body, which would be brutalized for them. According to the scripture, none of his bones were actually broken, like it says in John 19, and that they should do likewise in remembering him. And then in verse 20, Jesus takes the cup, blesses, gives thanks, and shares this third cup of wine and states that it represents his blood, which would be poured out for them, and he remarks that this blood would establish a new covenant, this cup of redemption. Now, of course, many of us know from our religious backgrounds and upbringings, if we've had them, that way too much in the history of the church has been derived and discussed from that little word is in here. This is. It's, though is is scriptural, most likely Jesus spoke in Hebrew and Aramaic, not Greek anyway. But the word is could have many different meanings, and nothing can be proven decisively from the text, and yet obviously there's very deep symbolism here. It's a metaphor. It's not literal, because Jesus was standing right there when he said it. Its meaning should be understood as representational, not as identifiable, as identification of him. The bread and the wine signify, that is, they stand for his flesh and blood in the metaphor. They're not to be identified with his blood and his flesh. That's an unnatural interpretation that you wouldn't come to. You wouldn't naturally assume transubstantiation or consubstantiation views. The reason that whole discussion even exists in the church today is because of church history and trying to figure out the meaning of Christ's presence. 
but avoiding what is the plain interpretation of the text. It represents his body and blood. Perhaps even more beneficial for us to look at this morning is Luke's particular emphasis here as he recounts the institution of the Lord's Supper. In fact, that's one of the ways you can study more deeply the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to look at the similarities and the differences as they tell the stories. And there are three parts, as Luke tells the story here, that are unique to him, that aren't in Matthew and Mark. And the first one is, he says, this is given or poured out for you. Of course, it's implied elsewhere in Scripture, but Luke is the one that mentions it for you, substitutionary, vicarious nature of his cross, that Jesus would give himself, pour out his life in our place for our sins. And we see allusions back to the prophecy of Isaiah 53 where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring, that is those for whom he died. He shall prolong his days, that is, grant him resurrection and glory and eternal power. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And in Isaiah 53, 12, therefore I will divide a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He interceded by both being an actual sacrifice for sinners and by purchasing ongoing grace and mercy for us. So Luke talks about and specifically mentions that Jesus was given for you, for us. Also, he is the one who says, do this in remembrance of me. Only Luke mentions that, of me. Just as the Passover was a remembrance of the Exodus, the Lord's Supper would be a remembrance of salvation and the cross. And we're to remember those two things, but above all, Jesus said, remember me, Jesus himself. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. Finally, the third unique aspect of Luke's presentation is he calls it a new covenant. It's clearly implied in the others, but he's the one who uses this phrase, Jesus is proclaiming that he is establishing the renewed or new covenant in his own blood. It's a new covenant because it would be one that would bring full forgiveness. It's a covenant that would bring true knowledge of God. It's a covenant that promised the very presence of the Holy Spirit in and among the people of God. It's a covenant that promised that the Spirit would work in power that he has never worked for, worked at this level before in the history of redemption. It's a promise of a covenant where the purity of the people of God would reach a new level. All of this is discussed in Jeremiah 31, where the the new covenant is established and talked about. And then in Hebrews 8, verses chapter 8, 9, and 10, it's a very worthwhile study to read through those things and to see what this new covenant would mean. Jesus established the celebratory meal of the new covenant And he would die as the Passover lamb tomorrow in the storyline for the sins of his people. And they would remember Jesus, the true Passover lamb that was given for them and sacrificed for them. Well, since Jesus is 
Passover lamb, the Lord's Supper is the redemption celebration of the people of God, and it fulfills the Old Covenant Passover. But listen to the apostles as they talk about Jesus. In the, in the Gospel according to John, John 1, it's, he writes, Then the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 19, that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our Lord Jesus desires that his church regularly commemorate the glory of his cross by the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And that's something that we do here at Calvary Churches with many other churches on a monthly basis. In fact, we did it last week. You know, the Apostle Paul sums it all up in this way in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, when he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You remember Jesus, the Passover lamb, who was given and sacrificed for you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we adore you this morning as our Passover lamb, the one who was given and sacrificed for us, that your blood is precious like that is a lamb without blemish or spot. For you are the perfect, innocent one given for us who are sinners who need to be cleansed. And you gave yourself in our place. You were foreknown before the foundation of the world, but manifest in the last times for your glory. And we are believers in God, and we praise you. We know that you have been raised from the dead, that the Father has given you glory, and that you reign on high. Our hope and our faith are in you, and we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom when we can enjoy in great fellowship the eternal meal with you in heaven. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, for your sake. Amen.